My name is Haley Winter. You're listening to How's the Pressure, a podcast about what goes on behind the scenes in the world of massage. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of How's the Pressure. I'm your host, Haley Winter. And today, before I introduce my guest, I wanted to take a few minutes to read and respond to a question that I recently received from one of my guests. Now, this question is from Jess, and she's from Oakland, and she is responding to an episode that I released. It was my second episode called Don't Judge Me with Stacey Brown, and we talked about sexual advances. And in that episode, Stacy was talking about clothing attire being one of the ways in which you can um, dissuade sexual advances. And so Jess's question is in response to that. So I quote, Is it fair to have women cover up in preparation of sexual advances? I think that it has more to do with if a client thinks that he or she can get away with something rather than the clothing attire. I understand my experience in working professionally is different from most, but I've personally never been solicited for sex acts, despite that a large portion of my clientele is male. My female colleagues, however, though covered up, have this occur a few times a year. End quote. Well, first of all, thank you, Jess. I really appreciate you reaching out and questioning something that was brought up on the show. I do envision this podcast as a forum for us to discuss and dissect ideas, so your input is greatly appreciated. And you have a valid point here. Your question was whether it was fair to tell women to cover up when you, assumingly less covered up than your colleagues, have less solicitation. Now, I want to tread really carefully here because it could be easy to fall into that classic demeaning and not very helpful trope of men telling women how to dress or to dress a certain way in order to avoid sexual advances. I personally feel that massage therapists should dress exactly the way that makes them feel comfortable in the massage room. But I'll follow that by saying that I do think clothing choice is also one of the ways in which the therapist can influence whether or not the client thinks, as you say, they can get away with it. I certainly believe how one dresses has an effect on your client's perception of you. However, there are other factors that play into that, I think, a lot more. For instance, your presence, your tone and your body language that you bring to the session, those things are critical. My guess is that you, Jess, are fairly comfortable in your skin. You're good at setting boundaries with others, and you take yourself seriously in a way that other people can literally feel. And if this is true, it's probably that is the reason why you haven't been solicited yet. Well, that and luck. I guess what I'm saying is that I encourage therapists to do whatever it takes for them to feel comfortable in the room be that wearing specific clothing or using assertive language in their intake or doing none of that, doing entirely something different. Whatever it takes to feel comfortable, that's what they should do. And the bottom line is that sometimes there is nothing you can do to sway the intention of a client. All precautions can be taken and the client can ignore all of it and make an advance. In any case, it's not the therapist's fault that this is all happening but it is their responsibility to deal with the situation as effectively and safely as possible. Well, I hope that answers your question, Jess. Again, I really appreciate the feedback, 
And I encourage any other listeners, if you hear something that doesn't quite sit right with you or if you want clarification, uh, reach out because I encourage the dialogue. All right, well, moving on to my guest today, I am very honored to bring you Dmitry Yakushkin. Now, while Dmitry is not a massage therapist, that's by design, because last time I had a guest on to talk about sexual advances, it was Stacy Brown, who is a practitioner and an educator with decades of experience. And her and I had a great conversation about her personal experiences and how she trains massage students to handle sexual advances. But for this conversation... I wanted to dive into the subject with someone who has a lot of experience on the matter, but isn't coming from our professional mindset. And Dimitri is a somatica practitioner, so he has a lot of experience with regards to people's sexuality, sexual experiences, and therapy to improve people's sex lives. So while you may not agree with some of his viewpoints, I hope you keep an open mind to the fact that he might be able to provide a new angle for you to approach this challenging subject. On a personal note, I found my conversation with him extremely useful, and I hope you do too. Without further ado, I'll give you my conversation with Dimitri. So, welcome, Dimitri. Hi, Ailey. It's really great to have you in today. No, I'm excited. It's, it's, <laughs> it's fun. I don't get to do this that often, so it's nice. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, this is such a, like a rich subject for massage therapists that doesn't get touched on quite as much as it should. And I, I, I know that you are going to be able to provide some really useful nuggets for, for people to pull out of this. Oh, so. Thanks. Thanks. So tell me a little bit about somatica therapy. What's the definition of somatica therapy and how is it different than other forms of talk therapy? Yes. Somatica is both experiential and relational. So we work things with our clients real time while we are in relationship with them. And because we don't have to maintain any licensure, we can touch our clients, we can engage with them in an erotic way and in a relational way. So if someone wants to work on intimacy or someone wants to work on a particular part of their sexuality, like learn about BDSM for just a simple example, then we can, we can practice certain BDSM you know, techniques or teach them um, about different like modalities. So what that means um, from a practical standpoint is that the practitioner and the client leave their clothes on. We don't kiss on the mouth, but there's a lot of other, um, you know, there's a lot of other boundaries in there that where we can um, practice with them. That's beyond, definitely beyond normal talk therapy. Definitely beyond normal talk therapy, right? Where the where like a lot of therapists don't even hug their clients hello or goodbye because there's uh, their touch is not allowed. So what is the difference between somatica and sexological body work, uh, sex work, and even massage therapy? Yes. Uh, sexological body work is, um, is a one-way facilitated touch where the practitioner um, provides touch, uh, erotic touch, for a, a nude client. So the client is naked. The sexological body worker is, is remains clothed, the client's on a massage table, and they provide touch in one direction. So eroticism, that they facilitate the client's eroticism, but don't engage with them in it. So they are only a facilitator in that space. Whereas in somatica, there is an actual engagement, and it could be two-way. Yes. It can and be both ways. It's necessary for it to be two ways. Our, our clients learn by arousing us, and, and they also learn by being aroused. Hmm. So, so it is important that it is two way, but in, in our, in our practice, both people remain clothed. 
Mm. And there isn't a massage table. We sometimes just, you know, just work on a couch or standing up. One of our, one of the things that we do to teach passion, for example, is like the thing, this thing that we call throwing up against the wall. So we'll either take turns or, or practice like throwing our client up against the wall and being really sensual and, and passionate with them. Hmm. And so what's the difference between somatica and sex work? Uh, sex workers, they actually can and sometimes do have full-on intercourse or sex with their clients. They can, you know, choose to take their clothes off. As a somatica practitioner, we remain fully clothed. We don't have sex with our clients. We don't touch our clients, um, you know, underneath their clothing. And sex workers have a much broader range of, of experience that they can give their clients. And in and that's the important word, is that they are giving their clients an experience. We are um, helping our clients learn something new in uh, to have a different intimate or sexual experience that they're, that they're normally having. Hmm. So considering all the things we just described of all these different modalities, mm-hmm. what are some of the similarities between all the things we talked about and massage? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, in all of the things that we just talked about, um, there is a practitioner and there, or there is a person in, um, in a practitioner role, be it a sex worker or be it a, you know, sexologic body worker or a somatica practitioner or a massage therapist. And there is a client um, there also is an exchange of touch in all of these um, modalities. And in some of the modalities, um, such as sexological body work or typical, you know, like, like massage therapy, um, there is a client on a massage table who may be disrobed and is receiving touch from a practitioner for the purpose of, for, for the purpose of, of therapy. As a somatica practitioner, what are the type of people that you work with? Yeah, um, a whole range of people. The bell curve is quite wide. And, you know, anyone um, who is having facing challenges in their relationship uh, around sex or intimacy or communication or um, or someone who just simply wants to have a little bit more fun or wants to spice up their sex life or learn about a particular thing, like I mentioned, like BDSM or, or learn about um, just dominance play or learn about passion or romance. And so, so we... We help people, we guide people into doing something different or doing something more fun or doing something more productive with their, with their sex lives. So you don't necessarily have to touch people in somatica. Oh, no, no, we, we, that's, uh, we, we do if it's, if it's necessary. Sometimes somatica, sometimes we work with couples and we help, um, like instruct or guide them into doing something different. Or, or teach them that way. So a lot of the times there is there is not touch. Hmm. So what drew you to work in this field? Uh, at the at about a decade ago, I was doing um, I was doing a lot of work in uh, dating coaching and writing people's online profiles. And at that time, I met Celeste and Danielle, who were who started Somatica. And immediately upon meeting them, I just said. I have to work for you guys. You need a male practitioner at the time. They were, they, they had, they were working with men, women, and couples, but they didn't have a male practitioner specifically working with women. And because transference is very important, you know, attraction in both directions is really important. Um, a, a male practitioner working with straight identified women or people who are attracted to men, um, was very important. And so I just, helped convince them of what they kind of already knew that they needed a male practitioner. So I just, I I basically just hounded them saying, this is, I have to do this work. And it was, it was just something that I knew that I was meant to do. So was this your first foray into sexual therapy work? Yes. Um, and so, so they, 
um, trained me and coached me in that. We also took um, sexological body work. They were actually teaching sexological body work at the time. So I took that and then assisted in the next four trainings for the four years afterwards. Um, I was also kind of their pilot program for new practitioner training. So after I was trained, we started um, we started a new practitioner training. And then I taught and assisted in that for the next five years. Wow. So your your history with this runs fairly deep. Yes. Hmm. Yes. So in massage school, we're taught that there is a connection between touch and sexuality. But from the therapist's point of view, it's mostly exclusively about like the intention and the location of our touch. So if we know to stay away from the genitals, we know to keep the intent of our touch in a non-sexual therapeutic way. Mm-hmm. But from my own personal experience, sometimes clients receive it differently or they get turned on anyways. What's your thought between the connection between intent and reception of touch? I think there is usually, like you just pointed out, high congruency between intention and reception. And then sometimes things fall out of that uh, of that congruency. Sometimes even despite your intent, people receive it as as sexual. And like you were saying, fundamentally the important thing is the practitioner's intent because um, that's going to that's gonna solve you a lot of problems if you don't have that intent. And then when someone receives it as sexual, and, and this happens in my work too, um, I think the uh, a really important part in that is to, is to just like acknowledge that it's happening without shaming them, without, without trying to move away from it or without trying to avoid it hmm. um, unconsciously, is just to at least to yourself acknowledge that this is happening and that, that it's okay. Acknowledge to yourself or yes. acknowledge to your client? At least to yourself. And At then you can make yourself. the decision. You can make an informed decision if you're going to acknowledge it further and mm. say, oh, okay, this is happening. I'm not being harmed. They're not being harmed. Maybe they're a little embarrassed or trying to, you know, to, to move away from it. Yeah. The, the massage isn't really being interrupted. I think I can keep going. So you mentioned that the intent solves a lot. It definitely mm-hmm. has some congruency. Why do you think the intention has an influence? I think um, in order to have a like a sexual relationship, it needs to be kind of like a circuit. And if one person's part of the circuit is shut off, in other words, your intent, uh, current isn't going to flow. Sexual current isn't going to flow as, as nearly as well as it's going to be if if you know. And and I think also the client also knows a lot of the times that that this is an asexual space, and so their part of the circuit is also a little bit closed. So I think intent matters because you can shut off half of it and then and then and you solve a lot of that problem Hmm. a lot of people can run a circuit just by themselves or they can project you as a sexual person and they'll run the circuit in that way and that's probably where you're seeing some incongruencies because the client is able to project something sexual into you and run a separate circuit from your intention interesting so in your experience what are some of the unexpected emotions that can come up with touch Obviously, you, you work with people in close proximity. Mm-hmm. A lot of different emotions fly around. Yeah. What, what's unexpected that comes up, and why does it come up? Yeah. Um, I mean, at this point, after working for a long time, nothing is really <laughs> unexpected. But, uh, but I do look for, t- to bring about the, the same point, incongruencies. So if, if I have an intent and someone receives it very differently, then that's, that's a big moment for me as, you know, as someone who's practicing in a, in, a, in a therapeutic bubble to say, oh, okay, this was my intent, 
and this person's having a very different experience. My intent was to provide care, like loving touch, and this person is getting very angry. So I said, so then that leads me to, to believe like, oh, this disparity means that this person has a, a history probably of pushing away care because something bad has happened to them in the middle of being cared for. Like poison came in the same pipe that like lovingness was supposed to come in through. So for me, from a therapeutic standpoint, it's very, um, it's very diagnostic. It's very, very useful. Um, but yes, I think anger is probably one of the more like unexpected or, um, like things that, that, that come up, emotions that come up that are somewhat incongruent with what's happening in this space. Um, a lot of the times, like surprisingly, people get really, really sad, um, after receiving some, some loving care. And a lot of that stems from longing or loneliness of not receiving it. And then once they start receiving it and really letting it in, they realize how much they've been missing it. And you say they realize, is it possible for people to have the emotion with not necessarily connecting it to why they're feeling that way? Oh, I would say most of the time that they're, they have a very difficult time connecting it, even with some guidance, hmm. even, even with some kind of like gentle nudging of like, oh, it seems like this is something that you might've been missing. You yeah. know? Even then it's, it's very abstract. That's very much my experience with touch is that people will have a wide range of emotions and they really have no clue why they're having. It. Yeah. And it can be difficult as a massage practitioner who has no training in figuring out why yeah. they're having it and to be able to still hold that container yeah. and let them know it's okay, even though I don't really know what's happening or why it's happening. Yeah, a lot of the times I don't know what's happening, even though that that's my job to explore it. I might not know for weeks later. They might find it out on their own. But what you just said is 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 the really the best part is just to let them have it, is just to keep make the container a little bit bigger to hold space for those emotions yeah. and let the client know like, Hey, this is fine. This happens. We don't have to figure out why it's even happening. I even say that sometimes just keep having the emotions. I'm going to continue to do my work. Yeah. And I think for massage therapists also, that's not within their scope of practice. So it's important that they're not trying to necessarily figure out why mm -hmm. and diagnose people yeah. instead just make the space available for them yeah. to go through whatever process they're going to. Yeah. That is a big part of the diagnosis is, is that they might find out on their own if you give them the space for it. Mm. They might, and it might take a day or two, but they'll, yeah. they'll do it. Mm. In your work, it seems like there's got to be really strong boundaries mm -hmm. that are set clear effective boundaries yeah and i think massage therapists tend to be one of the groups of people that has a hard time setting and keeping boundaries sometimes mm -hmm. what is your advice to massage therapists of how to set strong boundaries i think the most important person in in that system is the person maintaining the boundaries um and i think understanding that boundaries are important um, and, and why they are important for your client is, is the most important part. Like I, I can maintain boundaries because I know that my client depends on me to maintain boundaries. If I'm inconsistent with boundaries day to day or client to client, it makes the space very unsafe and it makes it very unsafe for me because I don't know moment to moment what I'm going to be doing. So with boundaries, and in any relationship, boundaries are important. Any romantic relationship, any family relationship, friends relationship, boundaries are very, very important. We have them all the time. We just never discuss them. We probably don't even, aren't even conscious of them, but they maintain safety and they maintain the relationship. 
oftentimes I think people have an easier time doing things for others than for themselves. And what you just described, you can apply that, right? It's, yes. it's, it's not for you. It's for your clients. It's, it is for your clients. It is so important for them because they, even if something feels good in that moment, even if something feels great to just slip a boundary or go a little bit over time or whatever your boundary, whatever boundaries you're talking about, be it touch or time or money, the client starts to feel unsafe hmm. and it, and it really breaches the relationship. It really, it really damages it to, to the point of almost disrepair. So this may be the answer to my next question, but what are some ways in which massage therapists can help keep the boundaries in the massage room and not get overrun by their clients? Uh, yeah. I think one of the most important things in, in my work that I've discovered for myself in, 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 in doing this work and maintaining boundaries is really acknowledging and allowing yourself to have the desires to break the boundaries. I think a lot of things, I think a, a lot of damage happens when people try to suppress or um, pathologize or build this really negative construct around around their desires to, to, to break boundaries or to have, you know, sexual contact or to have emotional contact. I think those desires are beautiful. I think harm happens when you don't allow yourself to have those desires. Hmm. Desires that, never harm anyone. Breaking boundaries harms people. That makes a lot of intuitive sense to me. It's always the repression that ends up, you know, popping out somewhere else in an ugly situation that mm. it really doesn't belong. Yes. And acknowledging can go a long ways towards releasing that tension. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. And acknowledging with a lot of compassion, like, hey, I'm a human being. I'm touching people for a living. Like, uh, there is bound to be desire here. There, there has to be. It, and, and that's okay. Acting on that desire can be very harmful. But I'm, I'm a firm believer in that all desire is beautiful. And that acting on some desire can lead to great harm. No desire is harmful. Hmm. It's all beautiful. It seems like some clients have sexual experiences during a massage that they themselves were not intending on having. Mm -hmm. What are some of the possibilities of why that's happening to them? Mm -hmm. Well, one, they're, you're, they're just being touched. And, and, and they're also probably attracted to either some kind of psychological or physical relationship that they're having with their practitioner. They're, like their practitioner is in a position of power. Maybe they are aroused by, you know, a power discrepancy. Maybe they're just aroused physically by the person who is touching them. Uh, and, and maybe they're aroused by the fact that something taboo or, you know, like this shouldn't be happening. I'm having a little bit of desire. And psychologically, they're really aroused by, by, you know, secrecy or taboo or, or something like that. And they could not be really aware of their own kind of like their own core erotic theme or their own psychological desires. And then all of a sudden they're having them in session and they're ashamed of it or they're surprised by it and they don't know what's going on. Hmm. But there can be a lot of reasons why, why that's happening. Yeah. This line between sensation turning to sexuality, right? We have this touch and at some points during some sessions, sensuality turns into sexuality for a client. Mm -hmm. Why does that happen? And, and, and how do we influence it? Uh, again, um, I mean, touches, touches erotic. And, and I've had a lot of massages where just, it, it just feels so good. And there's so much good sensation that it starts to spill into, you know, and, and, and into eroticism because there's just so much pleasure 
And even the word pleasure has a sexual connotation to it. Like mm-hmm. it's almost a taboo word. Yeah. But you go to a, a lot of the times you go to massage to to receive pleasure. It's not necessarily sexual, but it can become that because it just feels so good. And also pointing back to the things that that I mentioned earlier, they can be getting a lot of psychological um, needs met that they might not even know that they have. And and then c- combine that with them being. Um, in a really safe, warm space, receiving a lot of touch on their on on a body that's naked, all of these things add up to them having a a, a sensual experience that spills over into a sexual experience for themselves without their without their desire or want for that. Yeah is is it do you view it as like a spectrum or is there a line like a threshold between sensuality and sexuality? Is it crossed or is it bleeding into one another? Like there's all different variations and shades. Yeah, that's a that's a that's an excellent way to put it. I I see it as probably a narrower spectrum, but definitely a spectrum where mm. where enough sensuality and enough you know psychological arousal will will in that gray area or in that spectrum will eventually cross over into into like a sexual experience, but nothing is ever wholly sexual and nothing is ever wholly non-sexual. So how might a therapist tell what kind of experience a client is having on a subtle level? Mm -hmm. It's like, what are some tools that massage therapists can use to see, Oh, this, this person is starting to move into a sexual experience. What can they do to try and unwind that on a, on a, on a very subtle level? Mm Mm-hmm. I'm of the I'm of the opinion that uh, you know, and in my work at least, that leading someone into a sexual experience is a good thing. But but in that work, I also see and have experience with like when that line starts to cross into into that sexual experience. So it's 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 a little bit. Um, jarring for me to hear like, oh, how do you steer someone away from a sexual experience? But, but I can definitely answer like, how do, how do you spot that happening? Right. Yeah. And then, and then with those tools, yes, because you don't want it to be a sexual experience of how to backtrack that. So I think a, a lot of the times what's going to be difficult is there is what is a good sensual and, or a good experience as far as what's pleasurable from a massage standpoint is going to have a lot of overlap in that Venn diagram of what is also a sexual experience. But I think breathing is, is a big part. Um, I think a lot of people, when they start to get more and more aroused, their breathing changes and you can, you can kind of hear that there's like, it's like a different sexual breath. And we try to inspire that in, Mm. in, um, in our coaching actually. Um, how do you just, how do you, what is the difference? How does it become, how does breath become sexual? What do you describe that as? What we try to coach is like, is adding sounds, um, adding sounds of pleasure and, um, and adding repetitive sounds and trying to sync it up with how you want your body to move as you get closer and closer to maybe orgasm or as you get more and more aroused. Mm -hmm. So hips will start moving more and more of the body will get involved in that, in that sexual breath and in that kind of like in that erotic space. To go back to your question from a practical standpoint, what a massage therapist would be looking for is kind of like um, is like a clenching and a release and a clenching and a release and a clenching and a release. In layman's terms, more of like a humping motion, but you mm-hmm. can do it with like your hands or even your shoulders or, or other parts. Or feet. Um, people get squirmy. Yeah, yeah. 
um, you can see like they might even start touching themselves or they might start going to places that are more um, arousing to them, like sexually inner thighs or, you know, face and uh, just the general change in like blood flow. A lot of people get, you know, flush in the face. And I would, I would probably look at it like, okay, again, like where is the harm happening? Is this person trying to engage with me? Are they trying to go towards orgasm? Like, or is it, is it deviating from their ability to receive care and receive this massage? If some of those are happening, then you probably do want to steer it away by, mm-hmm. by going to another place in the body or suggesting that they change their, their breath, you know, to, 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 to a more like fluid, gradual and slower mm. breath. Mm-hmm. So assuming that the massage therapist feels safe, Mm -hmm. because that's very important, Mm -hmm. how might they hold space for someone who is experiencing sexual feelings without shaming them or judging them or making it feel wrong? Right. What, what I do in my work a lot of the times to, 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 to like, not even necessarily encourage it, but to do the anti-shaming is just is to, is to preempt, you know, like you know, different things can come up. Nothing is wrong. You know, like everything is beautiful. Like your experience is beautiful. It's, um, uh, is, is to talk about it maybe in, Mm. in, you know, in, in an early way, if you see someone like they're, they're doing it over and over again, or they're, they're really trying to make it a a sexual thing. It's just like, Hey, you know, sexuality is beautiful. Like this is, your desires are great. This is a, a massage and we're trying to work on, you know, issue X, Y, Z here. So Uh, these particular sets of needs are not necessarily going to be met in this location. In this location. Yeah. 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 And, but, and it also might interfere with your ability to receive care in, in this, Mm. in this setting. It's interesting. You talked about how you, you preempt a lot of this stuff because in your work, it is expected to happen Mm -hmm. to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. Uh, For massage therapists, it's not expected to happen. So it's a little bit more of a, an abnormality or an unusual circumstance, Mm -hmm. which is why I think a lot of practitioners find themselves on their heels or in a little bit of panic when it comes up. Yeah. And, and I don't know, I don't know what would be best in, in that setting, but I did mention preempting it or, or having kind of like some kind of talk about it and even mentioning like, it's very, it's, it's, it's not common. It is a little bit, you know, it is statistically unusual, but this can happen if it does, that's fine. But we are working on something else here. Right. And a massage therapist can adapt whatever that meaning in what you just said is to their own language. And, (laughs) and yeah, I think that that's, it's an interesting it's an interesting area for massage therapists because they don't often want to bring it up as a possibility as if they're going to lead their mm-hmm. client there. Yes. And if you start bringing it up, all of a sudden that puts it out there and that that almost invites it in some ways. Yes. And I think that's a little bit of a um, a gray area for some massage therapists. I would agree. Yeah, I'm I'm not entirely certain as to how how to best go about about, yeah. about that, but the, there is a possibility of some kind of like anti-shaming preamble you know yes but i like what you said about uh, saying that you know all experiences are natural Mm -hmm. and so when someone has an experience like that in the session they can refer to it as natural Mm -hmm. and okay even though it's not necessarily going to be met in this particular session yes and that allows it to kind of remove judgment Mm -hmm. yeah Mm. yeah so uh, there is a fear uh, that some clients who are rejected sexually, so if someone has a sexual experience and and the client and the therapist says, you know, your feelings are natural, that being said, that's not what we're going to be doing here, mm-hmm. uh, that the client will take that as rejection mm-hmm. and then get angry. Mm-hmm. I know from personal experience, I know of a couple of anecdotal 
um, events with practitioners who I worked alongside that had men, particularly um, powerful men uh, in the business world, get very angry and not violent, but borderline violent. They were worried for their safety. Are there ways that they can help de-escalate uh, anger from sexual frustration or sexual rejection without getting to that point? Yeah, my my experience has been with people who are that kind of like that entitled to where they will resort to anger. They really feel humiliated mm. um, in that moment. They really feel strongly rejected to the point of humiliation. I would call it, I would use that strong of a word like humiliated. And a lot of the times um, you will see that uh, that response as a strong counter you know, grab for power to regain power because I've just been humiliated so much that I need to reestablish power. That personality type, that character type does very well with people meeting them with a very firm boundary and a very, like something that they can, they can butt up against. So in, in that standpoint, there isn't anything to be done. They've done it right. They've had their boundary. They've, they've asserted themselves gently or politely the person has felt offended humiliated or rejected or some combination of those and then they get very loud and violent and to to continue your stance or even escalate and 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 have a very rigid boundary like get back down on the table like i I feel very i'm feeling very threatened and you know like to talk about your own experience with their with their um violence Mm because it is violence Mm mm-hmm and um, and to, to maintain, it, it's your space. You're the therapist. This is your space. This is your table. This is your client. To maintain authority and to maintain like that 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 power. Um, to essentially tell them what's going to happen. To tell them what's going to happen, and to and to also and to assert your feelings in into the situation. Like, hey, you doing this makes me feel very threatened. This is this is like um, I, I feel unsafe with you doing this. Get back down on the table, like. Um, this is a massage. This is not a, a sexual experience. Mm-hmm. To re- so to re- remain a very rigid structure, something that they can bounce their rubble, rubber ball off of. Yeah, and 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 maintaining that boundary with rigidity is 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 the safest way that I found to deal with that mm. particular character. Type. That's even if you feel like continuing the session, and you can still be yeah. put up that boundary and tell them what mm-hmm. needs to happen, and then end the session. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Mm. I no longer feel safe. I'm ending this session. I'm leaving the room. Put your clothes on and, you know, yeah. and, 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 and that's it. Well, this leads me to the, the next question, which is what is the, where's the line between taking care of yourself versus taking care of your client? Mm-hmm. Like in that particular case, it's important to end the session to take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. So where does that line exist? For me, that line is always that if I'm not taking care of myself, I'm not taking care of my client. Um, if you've been on an airplane, they always, they give that same talk time and time again. The airbags come down, you know, we're in a crisis, the oxygen masks come down and they always tell you, you put it on yourself first so that you can then help take care of the other person. If you aren't taking care of yourself, you're not taking care of your clients. You're not, you're not giving them a good example of how to take care of, of themselves. And you're, you, you, it's, you're in an unsustainable situation. You can do that for a year or two and sacrifice yourself, but your health and your psychological health will start to, to deteriorate if you don't take care of yourself first mm. and always. Yeah. So what I talked about before, you know, in these situations, 
oftentimes therapists get put back on their heels and they get into a panic state. Oftentimes I think that's because they're not prepared. Yes. So where, where can people get more resources to, or training to become or feel more prepared when these situations arise? Well, hopefully they're listening to this, to this podcast and, and learning like, Oh, I, I, you know, it's important for me to take care of myself. It's important for me to, 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 to be rigid. I would also hope that some of this happens in, in, in training in, massage school or with peers, I think it's really important. I think the most important thing that massage therapists can do or people of any, um, therapeutic, um, you know, uh, work is to have community and to have, and to share these anecdotal stories so that, so that no one's in the dark when something does pop up and to be around other experienced and inexperienced people who are just starting or people who are very experienced and been doing it for years to build community and learn all of the all of the things that might happen in session and to, and to joke about it and to, and to, um, and to normalize everything, Hmm. including their own, you know, including their own sexual response so that they, there isn't shame and that there isn't an oppression uh, around it. I think community actually to, to answer your question is, is super important. Yeah. It has been for me. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming in, Dimitri. This was really valuable. I'm, overjoyed that this conversation took place yeah, thank you thank yeah. you i had a great time i am for sure gonna have you in again we're gonna we're gonna talk about some more juicy subjects thanks all right thanks i can't wait well thank you so much for tuning in today if you enjoyed the episode please go ahead and review it on itunes and if you have any questions that you had wished i had asked or topics you want me to cover in the future please visit the website at www.housethepressure.com where you can send me an email and hopefully I can include it. Until next time, be good and be well.